From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The engines will start in six seconds before Sound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and other audio morsels we find all over the world, and in today's case, beyond. We listen to things near and far, the web, the airwaves, outer space, and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Dave, an extraordinary television picture here. On a warm, clear, breezy summer night, the sky is an endless spill of ink and sprinkled glitter. Looking up at such a shimmering display, you can't help but wonder about the vastness of space, the smallness of one person, and the mysteries that lie between them. And this is exploration at its greatest. The night sky beckons to us, simple but unknowable, beautiful but intimidating. We are her citizens, her students, and today on ReSound, we are her devotees. Stay tuned. Human beings and space have always had a love-love relationship. From the Wright brothers on, we have slowly been working our way off the ground and into the wilds beyond our atmosphere. Now that air travel is commonplace and even trips to the moon are a little passe, we've set our sights and our space program on Mars, which presents some very thorny problems. But there is one man who's not daunted by these obstacles and one producer who is not daunted by telling his tale. Here's our friend and former ReSound producer, Roman, this is not a joke, Mars, with his story, One Way Ticket to Mars. Ten, nine, ignition sequence starts. We can get to Mars. That's easy. To break Earth's gravity and hurtle towards the red planet is totally doable. The science fiction part, the tech problem NASA says will take four decades to solve, is how to get back. You can't carry enough fuel for a round trip. It's too heavy. The Mars astronaut will have to make new fuel up there. Literally. Dig a mine on Mars. Harvest minerals. Whip up a nuclear reactor. Assemble rocket parts. Not easy. But if you really want to go to Mars, like now, if you can't possibly wait any longer, James McLean has another plan. I think what we should have is a short program, possibly a 10-year program, like the Apollo program, where we would actually develop the equipment and land one person on Mars, and we would keep that person resupplied. 
the prime thing that makes this feasible is that you don't plan on bringing this person back. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. All righty. McLean is now an oil and gas pipeline engineer, but for over 20 years he worked for NASA on the shuttle safety systems and the International Space Station. And though he no longer has anything to do with space, he is still a man on a mission. I began to, to be uh, disturbed that uh, there were options as far as space travel to other planets that NASA wasn't uh, considering. I brought up at a, a technical meeting once, a, a guy was giving a presentation about NASA's plans for the future. He raises his hand and says to this guy, why not send one person one way? One person because it cuts down on the weight and supplies to a manageable level, and one way because getting them back is really, really hard. He was just astonished that anyone would, uh, would even mention such a thing. It, just, it sounded uh, almost immoral. But the more I thought about this, the more I, I realized that it, it, was, it was actually probably the only way that we could see this thing happen uh, you know, in, in our lifetime with the current generation here on Earth because all of the other schemes that I read about involve developing ex exotic equipment. It's going to take 50 years. You could call it a suicide mission, and many people have. McLean says it's really no more of a suicide mission than the early Vikings making their way to North America. But I think it's really no more of a suicide mission than life itself. Our Mars explorer would be going to live out a life on Mars. A dramatically shortened and unbelievably harsh life, but a life nonetheless. Well, it wouldn't. It would not be pleasant. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. It would be, uh, I guess, like living in a submarine. You would probably live in a, a habitat that was covered with with dirt. You know, so you would only go outside occasionally. The, the conditions would be so dangerous. Mars has a poisonous, low-pressure atmosphere, so your spacesuit better work forever. But that's assuming that you can leave your base at all, because Mars is also home to the solar system's largest dust storms that can cover the entire planet for months. And if anything breaks, you're toast. Or more accurately, you're a popsicle, because it can get down to 190 degrees below zero. Then there's the cancer-causing cosmic radiation. Uh, you tell me about a problem. Uh, you better hope not. And it's only a suicide mission from the astronaut's perspective. The problem is that for NASA, it's more of a homicide mission. And that's a little harder to sell to Congress. But explorers get it. Mr. Second Man on the Moon himself, Buzz Aldrin, says the one-way trip is the way to go. Do you really think you'd have trouble getting volunteers for the greatest adventure in history? Right now, the space shuttle has been demonstrated to be an extremely, extremely dangerous uh, vehicle. But uh, people are standing in line to get a chance to fly on the fastest thing on the planet. People are willing to take that risk for, for the chance of doing something remarkable. This person is going to be more than just somebody to go down in history. Th this person will be, will be like a, uh, an Adam or Eve type figure, a, a legendary figure. Plus, I have to admit, there is something about it that captures the imagination. A doomed, lone explorer in a tiny metal tube sending out daily transmissions back home. It would be poetic and beautiful and kind of inspiring and horrible and macabre. It would be riveting. And it's probably never going to happen. I think that's a non-starter from NASA's point of view. We're not going to send astronauts to Mars without the capability for them to come back. That's Chris McKay, Dr. Killjoy. 
I'm the Deputy Program Scientist of the Constellation Activity, and Constellation is NASA's return to the moon, on to Mars, human exploration program. So he's actually planning NASA's manned missions to Mars. Well, uh, personally, I I wouldn't want to go on a one-way mission. Uh, (laughs) And also, I like the idea that we bring Mars into the sphere of human activity, which means we go and come and we go and come. I don't see why we have to uh, surrender to the technological challenge and say, okay, this is impossible, we can't do it. I think uh, that's a cop-out. What we ought to do is say, well, let's build better rockets. Come on, you guys. Engineers get to work. Uh, I want a round trip. Chris McKay and NASA think we should go to Mars once we're ready to establish a long-term base, something like the Antarctic base, where there are humans there year-round coming and going and doing research. To boldly stay, paraphrasing Star Trek, that becomes the pacing item. But in a sense, uh, what's the rush? Why, why do we need to, to rush to Mars? The author of the one-way plan, James McLean, is 64. So for him, there is a rush. Well, it's, some of these questions would be nice to answer in, in my lifetime. I'd like to know the answers. I'd like to know the answers. People say, well, don't you want to see it in your lifetime? To which I respond, well, I'm not that old. <laughs> Maybe I will live 40 more years. Unlikely, but hey, I go running every day and I don't smoke. The fact that it's in my lifetime or not is really not an important consideration. NASA shouldn't make its decisions based on the lifetime of its current scientists and engineers. And of course, that makes good practical sense. But isn't there something to this idea of a bold Apollo-like 10-year mission to excite the imagination no matter what the cost? Shouldn't we recapture the thrill of the space race? The way you win a race is you exert yourself fully during the race, even if it means that after the race you collapse into a blob at the end of the finish line. And that's what we did at Apollo. We exerted enormous effort. We took our best people pushed them as hard as we could, and we won the race, and then we collapsed at the end of it. But the political context for space exploration now is very different than a race. The Apollo precedent is not the precedent to follow here. And that's a big problem. Apollo was NASA's golden age. When anyone talks about returning NASA to its former glory, that's the model they point to. Except for a small blip of interest during the space camp craze of the 80s, the shuttle era of NASA only grabbed the attention of the world when there was a horrible, horrible tragedy. James McLean asks you to imagine nightly broadcasts from the Mars base, peering with an astronaut over the edge of a crater five times deeper than the Grand Canyon, hearing stories from the base of a volcano so tall it nearly reaches space itself. And that's a beautiful sight. We'd have front row seats to the greatest and coolest Hail Mary pass in the history of humankind. One man, one way, McLean says, fulfills the bold and inspiring NASA of his youth. But he can feel it and Mars slipping away. They won't even study the option. If they set up a small task force or an office to study this particular option, I believe it would be obvious just from the technical studies that this is the only way it could be done relatively low cost and in a relatively short period of time. All of the other schemes for going to Mars, uh, there's no way it's going to happen anytime in the near future, if forever. Forever is too long, whether we follow the one-way plan or not. Maybe more than out-of-the-box thinking, what we really need is another country to come along and start talking trash and goad us back into the starting blocks of another space race. China, I'm looking at you. One-Way Ticket to Mars by Roman Mars. No relation.
разведчик майор Гагарин Юрий Алексеевич. We don't want to uh, find the hammer and sickle flag standing up on one of the peaks of the moon. We want it to be the Star Spangled Banner. We're lagging in both uh, the satellite and missile field. But there's no reason to believe that we cannot catch up if we have the will to win and if we just pitch in and get going. It's hard to know if we'll ever really see a space race like the global competition of the 1960s, with its Sputniks and its technological posturing and its Cold War overtones. So much has changed since then. But looking back at the events of those days provides a real glimpse into another era. We now bring you one particularly entertaining bit of space race history that was captured on tape and then lovingly bootlegged around until it eventually found its way into the hands of radio producer Larry Massett. Operator, do you read me now? Hello. Uh, operator, will you stand by? I have a tape which I've been playing for friends for more than 20 years now. I tend to play it to anybody who stops by the house. I've played it for the postman, I've played it for the plumber. I've had it for so long, I don't exactly recall how I got it. It would have had to have been back in the 70s, sometime when I was scuba diving a lot. Grounder Carpenter should be on in about uh, 30 or 40 seconds. At the time, I had friends, you know, scuba diving buddies, who were in the U.S. Navy. Apparently, it was making the rounds among U.S. Navy divers. All right. Uh, Scott, we have a long-distance call for you. Will you hold, please? Okay, the man you hear is Captain George Bond. In the mid-60s, Bond was in charge of a Navy program called Sealab. The Navy was experimenting with sending divers to deeper and deeper depths for longer and longer periods of time to see what would happen, I guess. Now, one of these divers, the former astronaut Scott Carpenter, has just set a world record. He spent 30 days in the ocean at a depth of 200 feet. Captain Bond is now trying to place a prearranged phone call to the White House so that President Lyndon Johnson can offer Commander Carpenter the grateful thanks of a nation. It should be a purely ceremonial call, cut and dry. Commander Carpenter is not underwater anymore. He's in a decompression chamber. He's breathing air in which the nitrogen, which is the gas which can actually cause bends, the nitrogen has been replaced by helium. Helium's harmless, but it really messes up your voice. Listen now, as Bond and Carpenter try to convince a series of switchboard operators to please put the call through to the White House. Operator, this is Commander Carpenter on the line. Thank you. Hello, Commander Carpenter? Scott? Yes. Can you hear me, Operator? Yes, we can. Now, Scott, will you speak, please? Yes, how do you hear me, Operator? Yes, 
Johnson is going to appear on the line. You'll note that Johnson is not the least bit disturbed by Carpenter's voice. Scott, do you read me all right? Yes, sir, Mr. President. Will you loud and clear? How may? Fine. Well, Scott, I'm mighty glad to hear from you. You've convinced me and all the nation that whether you're going up or down, you have the courage and the skill to do a fine job. Well, thank you very much. There were a lot of other people who demonstrated the same kind of uh, courage. It's a great crew out here. And we're all very honored and pleased that you saw fit to call us and uh, let us know that uh, you were interested in what we're doing. I know that being 205 feet underwater for 30 days and making the excursion dives that you did has uh, been very valuable to us and advanced our knowledge of how humans can perform under these conditions. And I want you to know that the nation's very proud of you. You're very brave and skillful, and I'm grateful that you've successfully completed this experiment. Well, thank you very much, sir, on behalf of all the crew and all of those who participated in Sea Lab. Uh, it's an honor to be a part of the program, and again, we're pleased to, uh, to know that uh, you're this interested in, in what we've been doing. I must apologize for the, the uh, sound of my voice. It's the absolute best I can do uh, in a helium atmosphere. How are you feeling? We're feeling very well. We uh, entered the be of decompression chamber about... Uh, four hours ago, and everyone is healthy, and we're running on schedule. 
Uh, I've had a note from Ms. Carpenter, and your wife uh, is very proud of you, as we all are, and uh, uh, I just wanted to say hello to you and all the fellows associated with you, and uh, good luck, and uh, we're mighty proud of you. Thank you very much, sir, for calling. Thank you, Scott. Good luck. I'll see you later. Thank you. LBJ and the Helium-Filled Astronaut by Larry Massett with the Kitchen Sisters and Jay Allison for the Lost and Found Sound Series on NPR. So maybe LBJ was a little distracted and barely noticed the squeaky voice of Captain Carpenter. Presidents, astronauts, they're very busy people. But that doesn't mean they don't find time to relax, and sometimes they relax in very ordinary ways, like listening to music. LBJ's favorite songs were Battle Hymn of the Republic, Onward Christian Soldiers, and Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, to name a few. The favorites of the astronauts, well, we don't know them all, but we do know the favorite of one Russian cosmonaut in particular. And let me tell you, it is out of this world. Starting in the late 1950s, Vacheslav Mesharin and his orchestra of electro-musical instruments brought new sounds to Soviet music. A worker at state radio, Mesharin was intrigued by the musical applications of advances in electrical science. So he and his cohort slapped pickups and microphones on traditional accordions, violins, and Russian balalaikas, and pioneered new instruments such as the early Soviet synthesizer, the Ekvadine 10. Borrowing from ethnic folk melodies, communist propaganda, and orchestral kitsch, the group, says Russian pop music historian Artyom Troitsky, created the soundtrack for a generation of Soviet swingers, music that was both quirky and inescapable. Each person who was privileged to live in the Soviet Union in the 60s and the 70s, they've got Michelin's music like soaked by their skin because it was everywhere. It was all the jingles on the radio, it was all the kind of phonovoy music, the ambience music on TV, it was all the music at convention halls and so on. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. But not always. Mesharin's orchestra began unknown and underground, practicing late at night and before work in the mornings. And things might have continued that way had it not been for something called the Soviet Sputnik. The year was 1959, and the Kremlin wanted their satellite to broadcast into the cosmos a stirring rendition of the socialist hymn, The International. So they approached Mesharin. And to make their point persuasive, Mesharin's widow Luba says the authorities sent the KGB to convey the request and take her husband to headquarters. One day they stopped by work and said, you're coming with us to Lubyanka. 
and he thought, why? And he wasn't too happy about it because there's only one reason you go to Lubyanka. But when they got there, they just wanted him to play the Internacional to be broadcast from a Sputnik. So he did. The reward? Official permission to perform. The band was off and running. Initial reviews weren't kind, however. One critic famously lampooned the group's irregular instrumentation, writing, Mascherin turns on an iron, and out comes Tchaikovsky's first symphony. Undaunted, the group scored an early hit with an Estonian folk tune given the Marxist treatment, 1961's Irresistible, On the Collective Poultry Farm. cultivated friends in high places, and soon even top composers like Dmitry Shostakovich began offering material. But the band's reputation was for playing a kind of interstellar music, and the orchestra was a favorite among Soviet cosmonauts like Yuri Gagarin and Alexei Leonov. According to Luba Mishirina, these early space explorers returned from missions endorsing her husband's music as the nearest thing to the real thing. The cosmonauts were all close to the band, I think because space produced in them a new set of emotions, a new set of colors that they felt there, up in the sky. After that, maybe simple earthbound music just wasn't enough for them. Sighted by Kanur in Kazakhstan would become a long-running gig in the ensuing decades. But the Mesherin Orchestra brought a Stakhanovite work ethic to touring in general, as they hit small towns and factories, farms and military outposts throughout the Soviet Empire. They were the consummate professionals, with all 13 members forever dressed in trademark formal wear. But, says Luba Mesherina, unlike traditional big orchestras, her husband's group carried the banner of culture beyond the cities to the farthest flung reaches of the proletariat. He tried to make instruments that were light, easy to carry, and that could work under any conditions. He always said, we should be as strong as our instruments. And for some 30-plus years, they were. Sharon and his portable orchestra played the theater halls of Eastern Europe, nuclear submarines off of Vladivostok, even remote outposts in the Arctic. They also entertained troops, Soviet troops, that is, in the deserts of Afghanistan. With a seemingly endless repertoire, this little state-sponsored orchestra had a tune for every occasion, with one exception. The end of the state.
When the Soviet Union opened up to the world in the late 1980s, Mascherin's brand of kitschy pop suddenly sounded anachronistic, too Soviet for ears perched now westward. Worse still, says Luba Mascherina, the band's own musicians wanted a change. They started saying, Vyacheslav, why don't we play rock? Everyone's playing rock. And he'd say, well, I like rock too, but you need to know how to play it well and play it in your own style. And if we play just like all the other rock groups, nobody's going to need this orchestra. In 1990, Vacheslav Mischerin disbanded his orchestra. He died just five years later, a footnote of Soviet cultural history largely forgotten until now. For this CD, called Easy USSR and released on the Russian Light label, the producers called the stacks of the old Soviet Sound Recording Museum in Moscow, unearthing an archive of more than 1,000 tracks. With some 60 hours of material expected in forthcoming releases, Russian pop music historian Artyom Troitsky says Mishtarin's music should dispel any lingering stereotypes of the Soviet Union as that cold, gray, industrial country you maybe thought you knew. It probably was like this in the 30s and the 40s, but since uh, the fall of Stalin's regime, Soviet Union was a swinging country, and we did have a lot of fun, and we did dance twist in the beginning of the 60s. And I think that the music of the Mischerin Ensemble would make a perfect, perfect soundtrack for this long gone swinging USSR. Check your Cold War ideologies at the door. Behind this curtain, they salt margaritas, not treaties, hand out cubanos instead of missile crises. And here, forget Khrushchev. The only one who really wants to bury you is the band. Vyacheslav Mescherin's Orchestra of Electro-Musical Instruments by Charles Maines, an independent producer based, as you might have guessed, in Russia. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Send us a signal, an SOS, a shout-out from outer space. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. I followed the crowd down Fenberg Road onto Boys Street, where men in suits and shining shoes were selling stars. At first I didn't know that was what they were doing, 
One suited man stood on a soapbox. The others sat behind a row of telescopes and their index fingers directed eyes about the firmament. Then I realised the man on the soapbox was conducting an auction. I thought they were an astronomy club. But people were writing cheques and a great celestial map clipped to an escritoire had pins and pen marks all over it. I saw the weakest star of the cross go for 100,000. Someone whispered to the effect that he had bought the four major ones and was not greatly attached to this last, only he needed it to complete the piece. What would the cross be without it? said the auctioneer. The man intended the famed constellation for a light feature in his garden. I felt a little sad for the ghosts of Cook and Magellan, lost upon dark waters below a bewildering sky. In the background, a ruckus was being subdued by the agency. Two men and an agent were fighting. It seemed the first star Dante saw when he emerged from the inferno had been sold in a previous lot, and there was a dispute over its authenticity. The agent was trying to reassure the man that though Florence was indeed in the Northern Hemisphere, Dante had walked down through the earth and emerged on the other side. The man's companion was showing the agent Canto 34 and the line where Dante mysteriously turns back in space and for a while believes he is going deeper into the pit. So the night proceeded and all the stars were sold, one by one. The final lot was a small fleck of a star, barely visible and only now toward three o'clock in winter. By this time there was little money or interest left. The auctioneer began the lot sheepishly at $1,000. I put up my hand amidst the scattering, disinterested crowd and said, 10. The auctioneer laughed. He looked around the dispersing crowd and laughed again. But his confidence was gone. It's a star, you realize. I know. I said, stepping close to the soapbox. It's worth much more, but 10 is all I have. The auctioneer scowled. I'd buy it myself if I had anywhere to put it. Reluctantly, he restarted the auction. He called, $10. $10. And brought the hammer down in disgust. I expect you can arrange finance. I handed him the $10 note. Now, where do you want it delivered? I don't. Leave it where it is. But it's your star. You've bought it. He held up a contract to my face as proof. I know. Only, leave it where it is. I like it there. I signed the contract and the auctioneer shook his head. An energetic few had already set about taking down their new possessions. The cross was gone to the rich man's garden. The man who bought Dante's star had it on the pavement, looking at it suspiciously where it burned as hot as a con. He was threatening to default on the deposit. I always liked the smallest stars anyway. 
the ones that show the reality of the dark as well as the possibility of light. Perhaps tomorrow I'll stay up late again and see my star rise alone in the east. Star for Sale, written by Patrick Holland and produced by Gretchen Miller, with sound engineer Russell Stapleton. The story is part of the City Nights Project, organized by Pool, a collaborative website from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. To hear more City Nights vignettes, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. So imagine you have a box of sand, just a shoebox, and it has some beach sand in there. And you shake the box around. You just shake it and shake it and shake it for a hundred years, a thousand years, a billion years. And at some point, some little piece in the corner becomes aware of itself. It realizes that it's a piece of sand in a box. That's almost like what happened with space in the universe. The universe is like this giant box of sand. It started off with all of this, you know, basically dust, and eventually you get stars, and you get planets, and you get life, and you get humans. And humans are that little piece of sand that has become aware of itself, and aware that it's part of a bigger universe. We are a piece of the universe becoming aware of itself. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Our next story operates on two very different scales, the hugely cosmic and the intensely personal. Here's a little background. In the 1970s, NASA undertook a project to put together all kinds of different sounds, music, and languages on a record that they would then launch into space, hopefully to be found by another life form. It was a kind of message in a bottle, from humanity to whatever else was out there. But of all the languages and all the music and all the sounds in all the world, what does one select to represent an entire planet? Author Andrew Yun and astrophysicist Carl Sagan were among the people tasked with making these momentous decisions. Anne told her story to Jad Abumrad of Radiolab as they sat next to a waterfall in her backyard. It was a chance to tell something of what life on Earth was like to beings of perhaps a thousand million years from now, because the the Voyager engineers were saying this record will have a shelf life of a billion years. If that didn't raise goosebumps, then you'd have to be made of wood. (laughs) Uh, It was also the the season that Carl Sagan and I fell so madly in love with each other. And here we were taking on this mythic challenge 
and knowing that before it was done, two spacecraft would lift off from the planet Earth, moving at an average speed of 35,000 miles an hour for the next thousand million years. And on it would be a kiss, a mother's first words to her newborn baby. Oh, come on now. Mozart. Bach. Beethoven. Greetings in the 59 most populous human languages. Shalom. Hello from the children of planet Earth. As well as one non-human language, the greetings of the humpback whales. And it was a sacred undertaking because it was saying, we want to be citizens of the cosmos. We want you to know about us. Tell me about the moment you fell in love with Carl Sagan. You said it was during the Voyager compilation. Yes, it was. It was on June 1st, 1977. I had been looking for some time for that piece of Chinese music that we could put on the Voyager record and not feel like idiots for having done so. And um, I was very excited because I'd finally found a ethnomusicologist composer at Columbia University who told me without a moment's hesitation that this piece, Flowing Streams, which was represented to me as one of the oldest pieces of, of Chinese music, 2,500 years old, was the piece we should put on the record. So I uh, called Carl, who was traveling. He was in Tucson, Arizona, giving a talk. And um, we had been alone many times during the making of the record and as friends for three years. And neither of us had ever uh, said anything to the other. We were both involved with other people. We'd had these wonderful, soaring conversations, but we had both been completely just professional about everything and his friends. And uh, he wasn't there, left a message. Hour later, phone rings, pick up the phone, and I hear this wonderful voice. And he said, I get back to my hotel room and I find this message and it says, Annie called. And I say to myself, why didn't you leave me this message 10 years ago? And my heart completely skipped a beat. I can still remember it so perfectly. And I said, for keeps? And he said, you mean get married? And I said, yes. And we had never kissed. We had never, you know, even had any kind of personal discussion before. We both hung up the phone and I just screamed out loud. I remember it so well because it was this great eureka moment. It was just like a scientific discovery. And then the phone rang and I was thinking, oh, <laughs> you know, like, and uh, the phone rang and it was Carl and he said, I just want to make sure that really happened. We're getting married, right? And I said, yeah, we're getting married. He said, okay, just wanted to make sure. And, um, spacecraft lifted off on August 20th and August 22nd we told everyone involved and we were together from that moment until his death in 1996 in December. Wow, talk about romantic, my it was god. So romantic and part of my feeling about Voyager obviously and part of what I was feeling in the recording of my brainwaves 
my heart, my eyes, everything, in that meditation on the record. I had asked Carl whether or not it would be possible to compress the impulses in one's brain and nervous system into sound and then put that sound on the record and then think that perhaps the extraterrestrials of the future would be able to reconstitute that data into thought. And he looked at me in beautiful May day in New York City and said, well, you know, thousand million years is a long time you know why don't you go do it uh, because who knows you know who knows what's possible in a thousand million years and so um, my brain waves and REM every little sound that my body was making was recorded at Bellevue Hospital in New York this was two days after Carl and I declared our love for each other and so what I often think is that maybe a hundred million years from now, you know, somebody flags that record down. And I always wonder, because part of what I was thinking in this meditation was about the wonder of love and of being in love and to know it's on those two spacecraft. Even now, in my, whenever I'm down, you know, I'm thinking, and still they move 35,000 miles an hour, leaving our solar system for the great wide open sea of interstellar space. Carl Sagan and Andrew Yen's Ultimate Mixtape by Jad Abumrad and Robert Krulwich of Radiolab. In 2008, the Voyager and its golden record left our solar system. To our knowledge, it has not yet been discovered by any extraterrestrial life. What songs, stories, sounds would you have put on the record? Write to us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. So now we know what NASA put on the Voyager Golden Record. We know what they decided, in effect, to say to the universe, to any life form that might be listening. But what does the universe have to say to us? Well, as it turns out, plenty. You just have to have the right equipment to listen. 
There's just a whole litany of different natural radio sounds to record. Hisslers and growlers and howlers and tweaks. These clusters like a pack of dogs barking. And uh, in the case of this morning, we're having these very soft, hissy whistlers, which are actually fairly rare. It's uh, 5.24 in the morning on Monday, the 22nd of June, 1998, at Watchin Park, uh, Billy River Campground, Southern Alberta, Canada. And he's got these great hissy whistlers happening, and uh, in the right channel we're hearing the beginnings of chorus. There was a burst of static from something pretty close, a lightning storm. Oftentimes when I'm recording, you'll hear kind of a <laughs> and maybe a second or two later you'll hear <laughs> the electromagnetic pulse from the lightning bolt takes a round trip to the opposite hemisphere and then it bounces back. And in making this long trip, the frequency components are spread out so you get this downward falling tone like a sigh or a hiss. These receivers are sensitive enough that a lightning storm could be happening um, a thousand miles away and the static would still be strong. You can just hear all the snapping. Let me turn on this uh, speaker amplifier. You just can imagine there is so much. Oh, in fact, we're hearing some nice noises now coming in. Uh. Okay, this, this is a, a very beautiful sounding event. This is called Chorus. Particles from the sun are hitting Earth's magnetic field and generating these noises, probably several thousand miles out in space. Imagine a soap bubble with wind currents pushing against it, and you can see it deform. Well, that's essentially what happens with Earth's magnetic field. So yeah, I've got these uh, funky-looking triangular-shaped loops. Five turns of about 350 feet of wire hanging up on the tree, uh, picking up the uh, beautiful sounds of Mother Earth. They're just vibrations of electrical and magnetic energy. And so essentially all these receivers do is pick up the Earth's radio waves and translate them directly to the same sound frequencies. And so the result is just beautiful and amazing. And it's been going on, well, for eons. And we first noticed it in England. In about 1882, the British telegraph operators started hearing these strange whistling tones in their headphones. But it wasn't until the uh, 1930s when some people started associating these with visible northern lights. As electronic equipment became more available to the average experimenter and hobbyist, amateurs started listening to this using fairly crude equipment, you know, maybe a phonograph amplifier connected to a barbed wire fence in the middle of nowhere, and similar to what I did when I first heard this myself. When I discovered Earth makes its own radio waves, I was amazed because I'm a nature enthusiast anyway, you know, I've always been interested in astronomy and science. 
I've got a long, quite checkered history with radio, beginning as a little kid playing with an AM pocket radio and tuning in distant stations at night. And I've done all sorts of crazy things, planting radio beacons in the middle of the deserts and bouncing signals off aircraft. <laughs> and uh, I was a pirate radio operator for uh, eight years. One uh, Sunday evening, I got a knock on the door about 10.30 at night. The fellow said, hi, I'm from the FCC. May I see your station? Just about as cheerful as can be. <laughs> There's a station in Colorado called WWV, which does nothing but transmit the time, 24 hours a day on shortwave. All the trash will end the cities for 21 June follow. Solar Flux 102 and Bold AM Dex 16. Repeat Solar Flux. But once an hour, WWV gives uh, lets me know what's going on with the Earth's magnetic field, and they give what they call space weather, which is uh, what's going on in the sun and between the sun and the Earth. Solar activity was low. The geomagnetic field was quiet to minor storm. The forecast so I'm aware that right now the Earth is in a magnetic storm and it may be affecting power lines right now, it may be affecting satellites right now. Space weather, this, this invisible weather we can't really see or feel on Earth, but indeed it's going on out there. And it's wild, and it's stormy at times, and it's calm at other times. It's just like weather here on Earth. Well, at this very moment, I've got my headphones on. These whistlers are really coming in big streams now. There's just one whistler kind of merging into the other, all slowly descending in pitch. Oh, these are so great. Wow. Listening to the Northern Lights was produced by Barrett Golding with the Kitchen Sisters and Jay Allison for the Lost and Found Sound series on NPR. Humanity's farthest reaching presence out into space is probably old radio broadcasts from a hundred years ago or so. Radio presents 
the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, they're flying they're out in this expanding radio. sphere. They're they're way past any spacecraft that we've ever launched, and they're still going now. From Hollywood, the Raleigh Cigarette Program, starring Red Skelton, with David Forrester and his orchestra, our singing star Lena Ellis, Bernard You've been listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Before we go, a little invite. Join me, Gwen Maxi, and Stuart Flack of the Chicago Humanities Festival for a little funny business at our next Third Coast Listening Room at the Old Town School of Folk Music. That's Thursday, July 21st at 7 p.m. We guarantee you'll roar, chuckle, knee slap, or at the very least, snicker to yourself. Find out more details at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Hi, I'm Eurydice Aroni, a radio producer for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And if you love what you hear on the Third Coast's resound, like I do, check out thirdcoastfestival.org for more radio stories that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. While you're there, subscribe to get a new unforgettable radio doc delivered to your inbox twice a month, find out about live listening events around town, and learn how to support this one-of-a-kind radio festival. Visit thirdcoastfestival.org. And thanks. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast interns are Danielle Izel and Julia Wetherill. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to the many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.